Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now, the sun aches over the tree line. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no-mooned night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Anxious Poets Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. For about three years now, I've been pondering, wondering, wandering about and around the city of Sheffield, where I grew up, where I spent a good proportion of my adult life. Sheffield is known as the steel city for obvious reasons. There was a time when if you were eating a meal and you looked down at the blade of the knife you were cutting your food with, chances are it would say, on it, made in Sheffield. As you know, if you listen to this podcast about seven years ago, I had a pretty crushing mental breakdown. Um, A sudden onset of anxiety with all the attendant mental health issues that that entails and I really struggled I was agoraphobic I found it hard to go out but as I gently began to recover I started volunteering in a, in a charity shop and I, and I decided that maybe one way of re-entering the world was to sign up for a PhD in creative writing I wanted to find a community of writers and creative people and um, the subject that I wanted to study in this creative writing was the city of Sheffield. I'd written a poem, a poem of grudging self-acceptance, it was called, and it, it was it was coming to terms with the fact that I'm from South Yorkshire, and that's probably not the most popular part of the world, and that Sheffield in the past was viewed as this big, dirty industrial city surrounded by big, dirty industrial towns that that mined coal for the steel industry. And then this city had had its own kind of breakdown. The collapse of the steel and coal industries, which was forced upon the North by the policies of Margaret Thatcher and the free market, 
wheeler dealers that surrounded her and that were active under Reagan in America as well created this uh, narrative that it was inevitable that the industries that were not competitive would die and that the markets would replace them and that if this was opposed by anyone like it was in Sheffield by the steel unions and the miners unions that this was um, a benighted thing to do and that not to worry the markets would sort everything out well they didn't if you watch the movie the full monty you'll see a public information film at the beginning called sheffield a city on the move filmed in the 1960s when everything was booming and people had good disposable income and were thriving not anymore and because places like Sheffield had the audacity to oppose the predominant narrative of the markets they were seen as the enemy Margaret Thatcher famously referred to the miners as the enemy within so these people that had built the country had been at the spearhead of the industrial revolution and their labor and industry had been the backbone of the country was suddenly characterized as the problem as the enemy and this created a breakdown in the city that i think we're still recovering from and i was fascinated by this this crossover between what had happened to me and what had happened to the city that i've grown up in and that i love i really love sheffield it's a it's a gem of a city in my opinion and I read this great quote from a friend of mine, Belden Lane. He is from the United States. Uh, I met him through the men's work and he's, he's written a number of books. One called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, which is a brilliant tour de force of writing. And this book that this quote is from is called Backpacking with the Saints. And he's talking about place. Places like this, he's talking about the Ozark Mountains in, uh, in America, I'm referring it to Sheffield. Places like this are able to make momentary mystics of almost anyone. They evoke a powerful sense of presence, offering a point of entry into the deep interiority of things. They evoke a powerful sense of presence, offering a point of entry into the deep interiority of things. My tutor was a man called Brendan Stone for my PhD, a wonderful man. He'd done a lot of work in the field of mental health and creativity and we began to cook up how I would approach writing about the city of Sheffield and he got me reading all sorts of things, books on autoethnography um, and flaneurism. Um, so autoethnography is, is looking, using yourself as a subject, as, a, as a, an emotional sounding board and walking into um, the the object of study which for me was the Shef city of Sheffield. Um, Flaneurism, the Flaneur tradition grew up in Paris, a poet called Baudelaire and people like him and even people like um, Will Self calls himself a Flaneur and it's um, a sort of poetic wandering aimlessly through a city trying to again use yourself as an emotional and creative sounding board now being from Sheffield the word flaneur didn't go down 
with me so well. So I tried to think of a Sheffield alternative and the alternative I came up with was traipsing. My mum used to say to me when I was a kid, what are you traipsing about at? Go on, get on and do something. So traipsing is a sort of slightly aimless wandering. Um, and and so I thought to myself, right, I'm going to traipse. Not aimlessly. The aim was to was to just encounter the city. And I, and, and I discovered that there was a fantastic view of the whole city uh, above a place called Ringinglow, just on the edge of the Peak District, um, not far from where I live. And I went up there and I spent quite a lot of time just sitting in the car, looking down at the city. You get this amazing view. Sheffield sits in a bowl, uh, in a, um, a natural bowl. And you, you see the valleys, the folds of the valleys and the houses built on them. And then you can see the city centre. And then beyond that, you can, on a clear day, you can see way out to Drax Power Station. And I've heard people say they've even seen the Humber Bridge. So you see the hinterland of Sheffield as well. And so I sat there for a while and then decided to walk into the city from there and just follow my nose, go where I felt I wanted to go, take turns down streets that looked interesting. And so I began that traipsing and I wrote a piece that you're going to hear now called Prologue to a Traipsing as a way of preparing myself for this entry into the city. Prologue to a Traipsing I stand, conduit, with the flowing road that runs down from Stanage out of the mass-trespassed moors. Above Ringinglow I watch as the dark tar river issues into wet yet rapidly sunburnished Sheffield. I stand conduit to expectancy of a wandering, a gritty itinerancy, tramping the damp road, mirroring the flow of my near sixty years, the city filling my wind-gloss sight, ready to enter an unsteady future. I stand conduit at a confluence, the deep seams of ore and ire, my history in factory-shutting Sheffield, and Maltby, striking pit, pounded. Distant in time and view from here, moribund hinterland to Steele's grave. I stand conduit to uncertainty, boxed in by old streets, echoing. Seeking a way to walk the city, to write the pages of present days. Pad blank with unknowing, a loosener for tongues tied up by being ignored. I stand conduit to make a start, more than a maudlin requiem or a sad and mawkish oration, well packed with an earshine of listening, walking on to meet the newly arrived and the left behind. I stand conduit to a troubled hope, in search of the sliders 
who slip between marrow and bone. Those whose viscous honesty and anarchic incursions rupture all that tight-limbed electoral thinking. I stand conduit to these first steps to tread the valley-riven streets with fresh boots. The peaked rain wetting my resolve to walk a poetry of traipsing, to write a flow of treading, to transcribe tough the unalloyed lines of a retold city. That was my agenda, my poetic manifesto, if you like, to see myself to be a conduit, to find that deep interiority that Belden talks about in relation to a place and in the alchemy that that creates. Find a troubled hope, as I say in the piece. I think Sheffield has troubled hope. I think we all want the city to thrive and, and to be a great place. Uh, as it has been in the past but we also recognise where we've come from and the uncertainty of the future and I talk about being in search of the sliders who slip between marrow and bone those whose viscous honesty and anarchic incursions rupture all that tight-limbed electoral thinking I was thinking of of the politicians of Sheffield who are always driven by the electoral cycle and the debacle with the street trees that was unfolding at that time. We'd sold out to an, a, a, a multinational company to look after our streets and, and they wanted to cut down most of the trees <coughs> on those streets in case they would be dangerous or difficult to manage. And there was a huge um, upsurge of local feeling and action about that. These were the sliders who slipped between marrow and bone. And I wanted to meet them. I wanted to walk into the city to write a poetry of traipsing, a flow of treading the unalloyed lines of a retold city. What you heard then was um, was from the album that, that has ensued from all this work called Made in Sheffield. Uh, I started to write poetry about the city and then and then I went out and started reading it at different places. And I was reading up in a place called Crosspool. My wife's band were playing uh, a gig and I was I was doing poetry about the city. And Andy Selman, who was the guitarist for the band, came up to me afterwards and said, I love these poems about Sheffield. Would you mind if I put some music to them? And I, uh, I said, no, God, no, I wouldn't. I'd be honoured. Um, and, and so... We, in lockdown, just sent different... I sent him recordings of poems and then he'd send me the accompaniments back. And um, and it was great. And, and here's a bit of Andy. We're going to be on a local radio show. Here's a bit of him talking about that. Hi, and I'm Andy Selman. I'm 60 years old too. I've lived in Sheffield the vast majority of my life, was born here. Um, I, I'm a guitarist in a band and... As Adrian said, we met at a gig. Um, I also play some other instruments, play a bit of fiddle, mandolin, 
um, and I was a drummer years ago so um, I just fancied the idea of putting all those different instruments together and uh, see what they'd sound like to Adrian's poetry. The collection of poetry about Sheffield, which is almost finished, and the album, which is available now, more about that later, all came from this traipsing, this crisscrossing and wandering around the city. And I was just constantly on the lookout for images and places that, that spoke to that interior world and resonated with me and with my history in the city. I found this fantastic quote um, from a guy called Walter Benjamin in a book by Rebecca Solnit called Wanderlust, A History of Walking, which I highly recommend. He says, Not to find one's way in a city may well be uninteresting and banal. It requires ignorance, nothing more. But to lose oneself in a city, as one loses oneself in a forest, that calls for quite a different schooling. Then signboards and street names, passers-by, roofs, kiosks or bars must speak to the wanderer like a cracking twig underfoot, like the startling call of a bittern in the distance, like the sudden stillness of a clearing with a lily standing erect at its centre. The city taught me this art of straying. So my straying led me to experience different parts of the city. And on a couple of the walks, I walked through Hillsborough and went past the football ground. And that evoked powerful memories in me. My first football match, my dad took me to see Sheffield Wednesday in 1967. 58,000 people in that crowd and I remember the men in overcoats and the boys all funneling into the ground and and the swell of noise that both scared and exhilarated me at the same time and Sheffield Wednesday beat Manchester United 5-4 it's a famous game ruined me for life it's never been that good since this was the Manchester United of George Best and Bobby Charlton and so it evoked all of that memory, but it also evoked the memory of the disaster and the tragedy that occurred in the Leppings Lane stand and how awful that was. Um, and in my mind, the, 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 the awful actions of South Yorkshire Police, not all of them, but the sort of cover-up that came and the collusion with the press like the sun to blame the Liverpool fans tracked back and I, I actually walked from Hillsborough past Meadow Hall, that emporium of shopping that sucked the life out of the city centre and and I went in search of Orgreave because Orgreave was the village next to the coking plant that in June in 1984 was the scene of a battle between South Yorkshire Police and many other police from around the country and the miners who were striking. I lived in Maltby at that time. And it was a time of huge social unrest. We used to take groups of young kids. We had a mini minibus. We used to take them to the coast at that time. And I remember being stopped 
numerous times on the way there and back because they thought we were flying pickets. And the Battle of Orgreave was very... Uh, loomed large in my mind. But when I got there to Orgreave, there was nothing there. There was... N the, 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 the coking plant has gone and there's now Sheffield University have an advanced manufacturing research centre there and they're building new housing estates on what was the slag heap of the coking works. Now the coking works was important because it, it provided coke to the steel works and strategically the miners realised if they could stop the coke getting out it wouldn't just uh, have an effect on, on, on coal it would affect the steelworks, uh, and that may well bring the country to more of a standstill. And and the Thatcher government realised that this this was um, a decisive point in the strike, and they sent five thousand police on that summer's day to stop the pickets. They even charged through the village of Orgreave on horses and there's many photographs and one famous one. And I wrote this piece um, as a homage to what I found there and how it affected me on that day of traipsing. It's called Looking for Orgreave. What is not in dispute is that the battle for the Orgreave coking plant was one of the great set-piece confrontations of the miners' struggle. Almost medieval in its choreography, it was at various stages a siege, a battle, a chase, a rout, and finally, a brutal example of legalised state violence. Tristan Hunt in The Guardian I went to look for Orgreave, searched the streets, walked through the new housing estates and the fresh-faced pub on the corner of the new road. For those fields where the police made charge after charge, deployed their snatch squads, and in a show of power, they cantered their horses through the town. It wasn't there anymore. No trace ever happened. No neat cross-swords over a clean white sign, demarcating it as a site of historical significance. Then I noticed, cable tied to a lamppost, what I thought was one of those requests for evidence after a recent car crash. Then I looked harder and read this. A serious crime happened here. Striking miners were beaten up, fitted up and locked up. The government has refused to investigate. It had a photo, the photo from that day. A woman, short, serious dark hair, beads and jeans, and she is warding off a mounted baton blow. I stopped, stopped off at my favourite Café Number no. 9 later that day to think about what I had seen. I told my story to a friend and showed him the photo of the sign. He picked up his phone and in ten quick minutes she was there, Leslie Bolton, the woman from the photo, drinking the coffee of her story with us. That raised truncheon still hovers over her, and after all these years, she remains a sign. She is evidence. What was going through that policeman's head, she asks, when he tried to smash mine? It's not about me, though. 
It's about those men, those families. They still have no justice. And the truncheon still hovers. My traipsing round the city was a, both an act of memory and an appreciation of the present moment and also a, a, a sort of leaning toward the future, a way of engaging with those three realities, the past, the present and the future of the city. I was really taken with a film that I saw um, a few years ago by Terence Davis and it's called Of Time and the City and it's his homage to Liverpool and it has all sorts of old footage with his narration and some phenomenally beautiful and evocative music. Mark Kermode said it was his favourite film of, of whatever year it was it was released. <clears throat> and and my collection of poems and the wonderful music that Andy has put to some of them is, is I suppose, my attempt at a similar thing. One of the most powerful things about trying to put this collection together was in the course of my traipsings, the encounters that I had. I run a couple of writing groups and... I was talking about the project and one of the women there, Janice, said, well, if you want to find out about Sheffield, then you should come and meet my John because he's proper Sheffield. And I said, oh, I'd love to. What do you mean? And she said, well, he was a steel worker for 40 years, a drop forger, and he can tell you all kinds of stories about Sheffield and how he's seen it and what it was like to be in the steelworks. So I arranged with her to go round and went to see him. He was on oxygen because he had emphysema and he was quite debilitated by then. But uh, she left us to it. He made us a cup of builder's tea and we chatted and we talked for about three hours and he was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And a couple of weeks later she rang me and she said, please come back and talk to him again. I said, why? She said, you have no idea what that did, talking to you, someone taking an interest in the stories that he had to tell. And it's given him such a lift. And I went round again and again, and we became friends. Unfortunately, a couple of years after that, he got rectal cancer and died quite quickly. Um, I saw him the day before he died. He died so well with such love for his family. And it was just such a moving experience being in his presence and talking to him, an ordinary man from Sheffield who, like many other ordinary men, helped to build the city, them and their families, the men and women who worked in the steelworks. They helped to build not just the city, but the country and it's very difficult uh, to see during the late 70s and early 80s, those people turned into almost the enemy by, uh, by the government of the day because they had the temerity and the audacity 
to stand up for themselves and to say, you can't just cast us aside because we're no longer needed. Um, and I just had such a great experience with John and I wanted to record, like the film of Time in the City, a sort of homage to him. And this piece you're going to hear in a minute is that homage. I read it at his funeral and it's just a way of saying thank you. John Spedding's Steel Worker, 1947 to 2017. Ten thousand long days I have rang you, and o'er for an untimely old age. Joseph Senior, Smithy Rhymes and Stithy Chimes. The face he sets to the world falls short of the man he used to be. And yet the steel he worked is still visible, assayed and tensile in his stainless steel stare. The drop forge's dirty process has filled his lungs. By shifts, earlies, lates and nights. With the slack and slough, the searing breath of the furnace. We sit in his living room, his dark mahogany tea in our workman's mugs. As we look at his photograph, of the black hole of Calcutta that was Turton Platz's River Don works, looking like an old master in satanic oils. It were great, he tells me, when we were Sheffield owned, but we ended up bought and sold in the hands of Australians and then the Yanks. This man's fate sealed in Sydney or Pittsburgh. Four mates work the forge, gauging with precision the moment when the great concussion would press out another cherry red buffer that would slowly harden into brazen steel and keep the trains apart. Some men died, three during his service it's dangerous stuff, steelworking, he says, in the deadpan nonchalance of his ilk. But you should have seen us leaving work, covered in muck and muscled. I lost three stone when I were an apprentice. He has been a buffer too, between the life of steel forged, hammered into his frame, the constancy of dropping, casting his life to its contours, and his family, shielded from it all, sitting around his woodhouse table. The heat has withdrawn and the workshops have fallen silent. Just this listening, a taking in, an absorption of a face, a form, a man uncertain now in the city he built 
the city centre, an alien world not visited. What honours do his kind receive? When is his medal ceremony? The life he gave is unnoticed, except by me in this drinking of tea, and by his friends, by his family, and it's not enough, not nearly enough. Poetry, Anxiety and Vulnerability This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. My traipsings awoke some powerful emotions in me, as you probably heard in that last piece. Anger, resentment, frustration. It made me realise that I had a real empathy with the city that I've grown up in and that I've lived in for most of my life. The sense that the people here played such a role in building the United Kingdom and then were so easily discarded and treated as if they were the enemy. But it also awoke in me a sense of love and respect and a feeling of generosity towards the people of my city. And this next piece I want to read to you is about that. I have been involved, as many of you know, with men's work over the years. I used to help run rites of passage for men, trying to help men traverse those events and and seasons in their lives, which, if they don't negotiate them well, don't bode well for their masculinity. If they do negotiate them well, then, in my experience, they become better men. Better to be around. More creative, productive people. And I was doing spiritual direction with uh, a priest, a vicar, from Brinsworth, and he picked up that I was doing this kind of work and he said to me, would you come over and speak to my men's group? So I I said, yeah, of course I will, no problem. Thinking that it would be four or five blokes from the parish in in the front room of the vicarage. About a week before he rang me and said, well, it's all sorted, the pie and pea supper is booked. Um, uh, at the Phoenix Social Club and um, I hope you can still make it and I said well how many men are you talking about and he said well between 70 and 80 maybe more (laughs) so this poem is about how that night went speaking to steel workers about rites of passage Come and talk to my men's group about male rites of passage, the vicar of Brinsworth asked me. Come next Thursday night. I had read all the books, Arnold von Gennep, Joseph Campbell, Rites and Symbols of Initiation by the great Mercia Eliard. I expected four or five souls in the front room of the vicarage, tea, biscuits and an earnest conversation about manliness. 
Instead, I was ushered into the Phoenix Social Club to speak to 70 ex-steelworkers following a pie and pea supper. What the hell does a man who mainly writes poetry say about masculinity and writes a passage to men like these? I dredged my taken-off-guard soul for an entry point that wouldn't come off as bullshit, as egg-sucking for grannies. What came up in the cage as the winding gear of my mind began to revolve was Ashington, a place that once boasted it was the biggest pit village in the world, a Geordie coalfield that birthed my dad along with Bobby and Jackie Charlton. I spoke of my father. He didn't want to go down the pit, so he conducted on the buses and then joined the Navy, shoveling the miners' coal into the engines of ships, fighting through a world war and rising through the ranks. He became a man by leaving home, by sailing to Ceylon, by being sunk by dive bombers, by surviving and fighting on. I became a man too soon because he died too young, and I told them about that, how I lost him before I was set. I watched hard faces soften at the revelation of my losses. They nodded and pints were raised. They showed me the photographs on the walls of the huge crucibles of molten steel. We did that. We went through those factory doors and we did that work. And we spent the rest of the night voicing what wrought us. Why my dad came to Sheffield and made rolling mills. Why I'm here in this city, forging words from steel, how their apprenticeships hallmarked their lives for good. Old men's faces growing younger in the furnace light, ready to talk of strikes and shop stewards, pickets and the fight for dignity, of the redundancy of their labour. And this was how we spoke that night of rites of passage. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. It's amazing where traipsing gets you. That poem is about respect, but it's also about love for those men and their families. And that interiority that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast that is created when you walk around a city and and I feel such a symbiosis with the city we've both been through a sort of breakdown and we're both recovering and part of my walking was to see how well am I recovering how well is the city recovering and then of course we've had coronavirus and it's been a hammer blow in a lot of ways. I went into the city centre the other day. I went to Marks and Spencer's and I was talking to the shop assistant because I felt like something had happened in the city centre akin to a bereavement, a death or a number of deaths. So many of the shops were shut. And he said to me, yeah, they've shut and they're not going to reopen. And then I went up to Barker's Pool where John Lewis, everyone calls Cole Brothers in Sheffield, used to be, and the hulk of the shop is 
closed. It looks like a, a shipwreck. It feels like a shipwreck. It feels awful and like something in the heart of the city has been ripped out. I stood there looking up at the shop and realised that that shop was why I lived in Sheffield. My dad retired from the Navy as an engineer and got a job as the chief engineer building Cole Brothers. That's why we came here. And to see it shut, it, it was heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. I know that it was like the middle class shop of Sheffield, but it was where everyone went for a treat. You always had a look round Cole Brothers and it's gone. And that feels like a tragedy to me. And another hammer blow on that rocky road to recovery that both I and the city seem to be on. So I want to finish the podcast with a couple of pieces, both from the album Made in Sheffield. One called Sheffield in Lockdown, um, just charting what it was like at the beginning of lockdown and that even going shopping had become dangerous. And then the second piece is about where I live because one of the joys of lockdown was to rediscover the valley I live in and to feel deeply acquainted with its, its comforting, wondrous greenness and its lovely, circuitous river, the Rivelin, and how curative living here is. So these two pieces are invitations for all of us who struggle with our mental health, with that sort of feeling that you have a layer of skin stripped off and you're very sensitive to what's going on around you. That, in my opinion, is vulnerability and it's the gateway to creativity. It allows us to, to empathise and to feel with the place that we live. If we're closed off all the time from our environment, I, I remember when I lived in East London, I lived in Poplar, I lived on a housing estate that's now been knocked down, New Amber Street, and um, Irvine House it was called, Irvine House and then Hillary House, it was named after climbers. Um, it was a rough area, very rough, um, and I got involved with the tenants groups at the top of the Isle of Dogs when Canary Wharf was being built and we, we learned how to support each other and how to fight for justice for communities that are overlooked. And it was the biggest building site in Europe for a little while. But I remember one spring when, I think, I think it was the first spring I lived there, walking down through Poplar to Poplar High Street to do my shopping and noticing for the first time the cherry blossom. There were lots of cherry trees around the streets. And I'd been reading the letters of Vincent van Gogh and he was talking about painting blossom and how fleeting it was. And I remember I got my camera and took photographs of this blossom. And even in a very built up area with very few green spaces, there were still 
this absolute upsurge of natural beauty and it made me start to really notice where I was living and find the little green spaces and and find the beauty in in the tough architecture both of the uh, of the area and the people and I've never forgotten that so no matter where we live there's always a walk that we can go on that will open us up to feeling with which is what compassion means feeling with the area that we live in becoming more part of it more rooted and in a strange way more who we are in the house of belonging by david white he has this this is the temple of my adult aloneness and i belong to that aloneness as i belong to my life there is no house like the house of belonging there is no city like the city of belonging there is no town like the town of belonging there is no house like the house of belonging we belong to the place that we live in even if it's for a few weeks a few months a couple of years we belong to that place because somehow it chooses us and we choose it sheffield for me has been this city of belonging but it's an uneasy belonging and it's an uneasy questioning sort of journey that i've been on with this city and these two pieces express that as well as i can Sheffield in lockdown. The queue is a serpent slowly writhing into the supermarket as its hind parts bask pensively in the May sunshine. The kind faced man with a finger clicker holds us in abeyance as we are silenced by the unfamiliarity of distanced queuing. Shopping has become a high-risk activity, the point in the week of maximum exposure to potential infection, the peak of my fears. All the normal panoply of concerns have been driven out like gadarene swine by one great fear, both legion and imperious. I get my scanner and begin my traverse of the silent emporium. The disinfected trolley measures the gap we have to keep. My feet patter the one-way system. Then they pause as I wait for an old man to leave the cheese cabinets. He lingers. Then I speed on, ignoring items not on my list. I have no time to browse. My mass breathing is audible and odorous. I smile at the young couple with two kids and an unruly toddler, squeaking with delight and squalling with ire. Then I realise they cannot see my face. The mask covers any attempt to make a human connection. I move on and enter the toiletries aisle, looking for the right toothpaste. I scan it and hear the final beep of my sojourn. All this time I've felt a presence only noticeable by effects. The masks, the antisocial distancing, 
the fear that stalks between our trolleys. In this labyrinth there is an invisible minotaur, a breath-born pandemic and no way to slay it and no Ariadne thread to show us the way out. And so the ordinary continues to be the thing that is most dangerous and the hundred-year-old memory that we banished. As I exit the claustrophobia of the shop, I read the sign that says, Donations here for the food bank. And the baskets are full. In the vulnerability that I experienced, having had a breakdown and now suffering from anxiety, strangely, volunteering at the food bank in Fervale really helped. And seeing those baskets in the supermarket made me think, actually, there is hope that in the midst of a pandemic, people still found the money and the time to put some extra shopping into the baskets and having volunteered at the food bank all the way through the the pandemic delivering parcels to people's houses seeing what they were living through it still made me feel hopeful that there is a spark of communitarian kindness in this city I also witnessed it and one of the other pieces on the album is uh, about Assist and, and Sheffield being the first city of sanctuary. There are people in this city who believe in offering asylum, sanctuary to people and that's going to be very necessary in the next few months after what's happened in Afghanistan. But I, I want to finish this podcast with a poem about the valley where I live, that sense of rootedness in a place. Tofts Lane. Living down there was like living in a bean pod. One could see nothing but the bed one lay in. Cider with Rosie, Laurie Lee. The row of cottages nestles into the crag in the same way as the child above me shapes her frame to her mother's hip. The buildings look down on me as mother and daughter greet me and my neck cricks up to take in kind faces and sashed windows. The dry stone wall, like a breakwater, keeps the cottages from spilling into the road my dog and I trudge daily. Grace's young voice, lisped by chewing an apple, is crammed with her new term. Mrs Green is young, there is also old Mrs Jameson, and on Wednesday after lunch, Miss Bankstone for story time. The daughter's garrulousness emerges from maternal skirts, cultivating the affinity of our gateside chats like tea in cups. To Grace's chagrin, grown-up talk begins. Her father, from
from a top window, his big plans that will eat their weekends, as the dog's lead strains against the current of our walk. Both this woman's grands lived in the valley, leaving a long drift of ancestral memory. From the planting of a line of lime trees to the paddling of pools, from old Matty's well to the quarry and rivelling glen. I tell her of a photo I found of our house from early last century, walls daubed with whitewash advertising teas and sweets for the Whitwalkers, a boy and a girl at the door in their Sunday best. The dog and Grace are restless, pulling us away from the richness of stretching our roots into this mill-streamed valley. This green backwater where we ply our subsistence, as it has always been, back into the horse-drawn past. In the last pass that a good chat entails, we share that the virus made us walk the valley more, traverse more of its paths and tracks, fall more for its green and shabby charms. We have both seen the barn owl as it swoops down Coppice Lane, outspread over us, cream and brown, at once lonely and at home. And the bat's erratic scattering progress as the dust catches us unlatched and opened. And we find we are breathing in time with the valley, finding green hope in its sheltering edges, nestling in like a child to its mother's hip. nestling in like a child to its mother's hip. That's how I feel about Sheffield. It's been a place that I can nestle into. But there's another aspect of Sheffield that I want to mention just at the end of this. A Colonel Delancey, the Deputy Adjutant to the Secretary of State for War, said this on the 13th of June, 1792. At Sheffield, I found factious people who are endeavouring to disturb the peace of the country. And indeed, they seem with great judgment to have chosen this as the centre of all their seditious machinations. The centre of all their seditious machinations. It's in a book called Sheffield Troublemakers by David Price. Sheffield, during the time of Mrs Thatcher, was jokingly referred to as the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. We had buses that the council subsidised and you could get anywhere uh, around the, the county, this part of the county, for, for very little. And there's always been a tradition of sedition in Sheffield. I found it when I interviewed all the members of ASSIST who had founded that amazing organisation that helps refugees. I found it all over the place. There's a, a northern grittiness about Sheffield that I absolutely love. And it's both these aspects that I think Andy and I have managed to capture with the album. The place that you can nestle into, that, that nurtures you and gives you a green sense of well-being 
and also the seditious machinations of the people who won't lie down, they won't give up, they won't stop fighting for a better city. And, and I think in terms of mental health, those two things are really important, both the willingness to find that curative space in the city and also because that brings resilience to have the courage and, and the willingness to not lie down but to stand up and to and to deal with your issues and to seek ways through and out of them and I think that's what uh, Andy and I have captured I think that's what Sheffield is about I think that's what my recovery is about so please stream the album if you get the chance um, it's on Apple Music it's on Spotify if you look on my website www.adriangrscott.com there's a, a nice article, a link to an article in the Star, our local newspaper, in the music section about the project. There's more information about Andy. And hopefully in the next couple of months or so, we'll be putting some of these poems on live. Um, I've just got to work out a way of playing about seven instruments all at the same time, but um, I won't let that put me off. It's always a risk with poetry, having anything that takes away from hearing the words but I actually think that the accompaniments that Andy's come up with they don't take away from it they augment the experience of the words for one reason and another I didn't finish the PhD but I have continued with the project the album made in Sheffield is part of that project and hopefully in the next few months the publishing of the collection will be the other part I've also done exhibitions of the photography that came from the traipsing um, and I hope to do more of that. This has all been very curative for me. It's really helped with recovery from anxiety and helped me to learn to live with anxiety, which is I think what the city of Sheffield is learning to live with, the anxiety of such uncertainty, such an uncertain future. So thanks for listening. This has been about the poetry of place. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet, and this has been the Anxious Poets podcast. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye. Poetry, anxiety, and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. <laughs>